So I've been teaching for 23 years. And sometime around last year, I noticed um, this radical shift in the curriculum. I noticed something very, very wrong when I set out to teach the Declaration of Independence. And my principal was irate. And that's when I started noticing a very bizarre theme of anti-Americanism, uh, race-based literature, and very politicized, strange, cartoon-like book. Great inflation is, okay. is becoming an epidemic and it serves no child. Is there a lot of secrecy? Would you know everything is based on secrecy and dishonesty currently? That is also a Trojan horse for a much bigger, more nefarious political agenda that is that is seeking to politicize our children. It's quite astounding that he predicted this early on, and it's now happening. Welcome to episode 15 of the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. I'm your host, Alan Wolin. In episode 14, we listened to a 1993 interview with Thomas Sowell about his book, Inside American Education. And we let Sowell himself introduce us to the main themes of that book. In this episode, I'd like to present a more structured summary of Inside American Education, and discuss my thoughts on some of the key arguments of the first half of the book. Later in the show, I interview an elementary school teacher named Ramona Bessinger about her take on the arguments in Sowell's book and whether or not the trends identified by Sowell are still happening today, 30 years later. That was Ramona you just heard in the intro clips to this episode. Regular listeners of this podcast will know that I always suggest you read the original Sowell text yourself and not rely solely on my interpretation of it. But this time, I really recommend you read the entire book. As always with Sowell, so many of the arguments he presents in the book are not only counterintuitive, but also quite revolutionary in their implications. Not to mention that when you read original Sowell texts, new permanent neural connections get formed in your brain which is the main benefit of reading Sowell. I don't have any scientific proof of this assertion, but I'm sure that most of you listening to this will agree with me based on your own experience. I've put two links in the show notes, which may be of use to you. One link will take you to a folder with all the passages from the first half of the book, which I highlighted. There are some classic quotes in there. The other link will be to the full book on Amazon, which I recommend you buy or at least borrow for free on Libby. It's available there in both ebook and audiobook formats. By the way, this is a great book to recommend to your friends if they ask you which Sowell book to start with. The book is especially useful if they have school or college-age children because they will easily be able to relate to the themes of the book from first-hand experience. For this episode, I'm going to try something new. When I quote Sowell from the book, Instead of using clips from the audiobook, I'm going to ask my wife to read the quotes instead. 
This way, you get to hear a female voice sprinkled in with my voice just for variety. Plus, for me, there's an added benefit. This is a great way for me to get my wife to read soul. Literally. Quite diabolical, don't you think? With that introduction, here's my summary of the first three chapters of Thomas Sowell's 1993 classic, Inside American Education, The Decline, The Deception, The Dogmas. Sowell starts the book with a sobering quote from John Copperman. For the first time in the history of our country, the educational skills of one generation will not surpass, will not equal, will not even approach those of their parents. Uh Uh-oh. I can already tell that this book is not going to be a feel-good story about how lucky we are to be Americans. By starting with this quote, Sowell wants the reader to know right away that American education is in serious decline. What's really interesting about this claim is that I almost never hear anyone make it. When was the last time you heard a teacher, a college professor, a journalist, or a news show host say, Ladies and gentlemen, the sad truth is that American education has been in serious decline for a long time, and someone should do something about it. I've never heard anything like that my entire life. But according to Sowell in Chapter 1 of his book, the signs of decline are hard to miss and impossible to ignore. According to Sowell, writing in 1993, there was a dramatic decline in standardized test scores between the early 1960s and the early 90s. This was true across the board, whether you looked at SAT scores, ACT scores, or a variety of other tests. Interestingly, according to Sowell, this decline in test scores was accompanied by a dramatic rise in school grades at all levels, including college. So while American kids were getting dumber by the decade, American parents thought their kids were getting smarter. Sowell says this. These two trends, grade inflation and declining test scores, are by no means unconnected. Without the systematic deception of parents and the public by rising grades, it is highly unlikely that the decline in performance could have continued so long. Sowell captures this odd phenomenon when he describes an international study which found that Koreans ranked first among industrialized nations in math, while Americans ranked dead last. Though when asked if they were good at math, only 23% of Korean students said yes, while 68% of American students said yes. So while Americans were world leaders in feeling good about themselves, They were at the bottom of the class in terms of actually being able to do math. According to Sowell, American students are not just poor at math compared to their peers in other countries. They were also deficient in reasoning itself. Sowell talks about a trend in America toward what he calls psychotherapeutic education. Sowell says this. The phrase, I feel, is often used by American students to introduce a conclusion rather than say, I think or I know, much less I conclude. Unfortunately, I feel is often the most accurate term and is regarded as sufficient by many teachers as well as students. The net result, as in mathematics, is that many students are confident in competence, whether discussing social issues, world events, or other subjects. According to Sowell, This quest to promote self-esteem in their students 
has led to a dumbing down of the curricula in schools and, ironically, to a diminution in the intellectual skills which in an earlier era would have been the basis for genuine self-esteem. Sowell talks a lot about the McGuffey's Reader series in his book, and he compares the level of education provided by McGuffey's readers between 1836, when they were first published, until 1920, when they went out of style. If you're not familiar with the McGuffey's series, I suggest you purchase them. I just bought all seven books in the series for only $7 on Amazon Kindle. When I went to the best public library here in Los Angeles to ask for the books, neither one of the two librarians working in the massive children's section of the library had ever heard of these books, and it took us together 10 minutes to figure out how to spell McGuffey's so we could look them up on the computer. It turns out they had only one copy of one of the readers on hand, which I promptly borrowed. Let me give you two examples of the gems you will find in these books. This first example is a short poem from the second book in the series. Beautiful faces are they that wear the light of a pleasant spirit there. Beautiful hands are they that do deeds that are noble, good, and true. Beautiful feet are they that go swiftly to lighten another's woe. The second example is a poem from the fourth reader called Try, Try Again. Tis a lesson you should heed. Try, try again. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Then your courage should appear. For if you will persevere, you will conquer, never fear. Try, try again. Once or twice, though, you should fail. Try, try again. If you would at last prevail, try, try again. If we strive, tis no disgrace, though we do not win the race. What should you do in the case? Try, try again. If you find your task is hard, try, try again. Time will bring you your reward. Try, try again. All that other folks can do, why with patience should not you? Only keep this rule in view. Try, try again. I think you will agree with me that these passages are beautiful, uplifting, and wholesome. They belong to another age where high intellectual standards were expected of all students. I'll never forget an example Sowell gives in the book of an examination given to students in one-room schoolhouses throughout rural Kansas in the early 20th century. One question was, What is the interest earned on a $900 note at 8% after two years, two months, and six days? Another question required the pupil to define such words as elucidation, zenith, and panegyric. These questions were required to get a diploma awarded at the end of the eighth grade. So overall, Sowell does a good job in Chapter 1 making the case that students today are not performing at the same intellectual level as students from yesteryear. He now turns his attention to the educational establishment and describes how they respond to complaints of academic decline. Sowell identifies five common tactics, secrecy, camouflage, 
denial, shifting the blame, and demanding more money. So-called confidentiality policies maintain secrecy of what's really going on behind the scenes. Grade inflation camouflages the academic decline. And when they can't deny it any longer, they blame outside forces like parents and the society at large and claim they don't have enough money to do a good job. Sowell spends many pages debunking many of these tactics, and I won't present too many of his arguments here. Let me just say that he spends a great deal of time in the book challenging the notion that more money will lead to better educational outcomes. Sowell makes three key arguments. Number one, most of the additional money spent never reaches the classroom anyway. Number two, more money just leads to experimentation with new educational fads and fashions and never leads to greater emphasis being placed on the basics. And number three, more money for colleges usually means more money for research, which simply lures professors away from the classroom. Sowell summarizes his view about money and education when he says, Our schools are already turning out some of the most expensive incompetence anywhere. Making them still more expensive will not change that. Sowell now turns his attention to the dogmas and hidden agendas which permeate American public schools. This is the section of the book which is truly paradigm-shifting. And after I read this part, I got that aha moment feeling which everyone longs for when they read. Let's hear from Sowell. Sweeping beliefs about the general society or about how life ought to be lived likewise became prevalent among educators without empirical verification being required. More important, world-saving crusades based on such beliefs have increasingly intruded into the classroom from kindergarten to college, crowding out the basic skills that American students lack. Some of this represents changing views among educators as to the role of education. Behind much of the world-saving curriculum, however, are the organized efforts of outside interests and movements determined to get their special messages into the classroom. I encourage you to rewind this podcast 30 seconds at this point and listen to that quote again. It explains so much of what we are seeing today in our schools, both public and private. Educators have come to believe that it is their job to save the world by promoting various crusades and agendas. Their job is no longer the teaching of basic intellectual skills like reading, writing, science, and arithmetic. No, their job is to train the next generation on how life ought to be lived in their opinion. The idea of world-saving crusades makes so much sense when I think about almost all the controversies surrounding education today. There's the so-called anti-racism movement sweeping today's schools, seeking to save the world from racism. There's the gender identity movement sweeping the schools to save the world from bigotry. There's the climate change movement to save the world from climate disaster. There's the anti-intellectual movement to save the world from meritocracy. There's the anti-hate speech movement to save the world from offensive language. There's the multicultural movement to save the world from America and Western culture. And finally, there's the transsexual movement to save the world from the dreadful boredom 
of living your whole life in the body you were born with. The list goes on and on. And these days, America is most certainly the leading exporter of world-saving crusades to the rest of the world. Sowell gives the example of the February 1990 issue of PTA Today magazine, published by the National Parent Teacher Association. In this one issue, there were articles about dieting, food allergies, radon gas dangers, vaccinations, aging and dying, AIDS, teenage drivers, corporal punishment, and many other non-academic subjects. And there was not a single article dealing with educational basics. No wonder basic academic skills are falling by the wayside. There's no time left on the academic calendar to squeeze them in. Sowell laments this trend for the main reason that it leads to a degeneration of education itself. Sowell says this, The politicization of education is unlikely to have as much long-run effect on politics as it does on education. It is not the particular goal of ideological zealots which are at issue here, but the damage they are doing to American education while pursuing these goals. The real issue is not political imbalance, as some conservative critics have claimed, for adding more teachers and professors from the political right, doing what those on the left are doing would not solve the educational problem. It is at this point in the book where Sowell whips out a word which you don't hear used that much nowadays, even though it should probably be used more often, brainwashing. Sowell must have made the decision that he's not going to hold back on this subject. He's going to call him like he sees him. And in this case, he's prepared to call what teachers are doing in their classrooms brainwashing. Sowell says this. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you thinking about starting a podcast, launching a YouTube channel, or repurposing your old blog content? Then I have the podcast just for you. Hi. I'm Crystal Prophet, host of The Prophet Podcast, and as a content creator, I know firsthand what it's like to feel confused and overwhelmed with everything you could or should be doing. So join us every week as we strip down those processes and take all of that overwhelm away. We'll talk about the strategies I use to help creators start, launch, and market their content with confidence. If that sounds like something you're on board with, then click the link in the show notes and follow The Prophet Podcast today. A whole new social phenomenon known as affective education has spread across the country, seeking to reshape the moral values, personal habits, and social mindsets of American children. Affective education is not to be confused with affective education. Indeed, it is one of many agendas which distract schools from affective education. The emotionalizing of education not only takes time away from intellectual development, it also casts teachers as amateur psychologists, though they are unqualified to gauge the consequences of their manipulation of children's emotions. Wow, all that in chapter one. Sowell is not holding back in this book. Not to suggest that he holds back in any of his books. He devotes the entire chapter 3 to the subject of brainwashing, which we will discuss in more detail later. Chapter 2 turns our attention to the caliber of people who teach in American public schools. 
Sowell starts the chapter with this statement. No discussion of American education can be realistic without considering the caliber of the people who teach in the nation's schools. By all indicators, whether objective data or first-hand observations, the intellectual caliber of public school teachers in the United States is shockingly low. In this chapter, Sowell makes a full case to explain why the quality of American teachers is so low. But before I outline his arguments, let me just say that I'm also surprised that I never hear this viewpoint expressed in our media. It's as if the media were hiding the truth so as not to offend teachers. That's how it feels. I can sort of understand that, but on the other hand, isn't this something that the American public deserves to know, not to mention parents in particular? Sowell provides four explanations for why teacher quality is so low. Number one, public school teaching is an overwhelmingly unionized occupation with virtually ironclad job security, which makes it extremely difficult and expensive to fire incompetent teachers. Number two, education courses are required for teachers to attain tenure in the public school system, and these courses serve as a filter to weed out the most competent teachers academically. According to Sowell, both the education students and the education professors have consistently ranked among the lowest performing people academically in universities around the country. Sowell says this, Despite some attempts to depict such attitudes as mere snobbery, hard data on education student qualifications have consistently shown their mental test scores to be at or near the bottom among all categories of students. Not only have their test scores been low, they have also been declining over time. In short, educators are drawing disproportionately from the dregs of the college-educated population. Number three. Even when administrators can no longer deny that a teacher is incompetent because so many parents are complaining, it is much easier and cheaper for the Board of Education to transfer that teacher to a different school rather than trying to fire them. And many of these incompetent teachers get intentionally moved into a low-income neighborhood school where the parents are less likely to complain. Number four. The non-academic orientation of most public school teachers. Here Sowell makes the argument that most teachers just aren't that academically oriented and would rather spend their time promoting various social causes than teaching the basics. Sowell is blunt when he says this. It is not simply that they are academically deficient. They are not academically oriented. Nor is it reasonable to expect them to have a dedication to academic work which brought them so little success when they were students in high school or college. This non-academic orientation makes public school teachers highly susceptible to non-academic fashions and dogmas, what Sowell calls classroom brainwashing. Now we come to chapter three, one of the best parts of the book, where Sowell describes the brainwashing going on in American public schools and the various brainwashing techniques employed by educators. The first technique Sowell describes is that of crafting names for various programs being introduced into the schools, which camouflage what's really going on in those courses. Sowell gives an example common to the 80s and 90s of so-called sex education courses, 
which were seldom about simply conveying medical and biological information about sexual processes, and more about reshaping children's attitudes towards sex, towards parents, society, and life in general. Sowell outlines five more brainwashing techniques used by educators, and I'll briefly list them here. Number one is using emotional stress to break down intellectual and emotional resistance to the ideas being conveyed. Number two is isolating the child from his parents' influence and driving a wedge between the student and his parents. Number three is using peer pressure to undermine pre-existing values. Number four is stripping the individual of reserve, of privacy, and the ability to decline to participate in uncomfortable conversations. Number five is rewarding acceptance of the new attitudes and beliefs. Sowell gives many examples of each of these techniques in practice, and I encourage you to read this chapter carefully. It explains so much of what we are seeing in our schools today. Now I'd like to introduce Ramona Bessinger to the show. Ramona is a 23-year public school teacher in Providence, Rhode Island, who most recently taught English to elementary school students. Her story is a cautionary tale on many levels, both about what has been happening in our nation's schools, as well as what happens to teachers who speak out against the trends. Ramona is not a heavy-duty Thomas Sowell reader, and that's not why I invited her onto the show. I invited her on because I thought it would be helpful for us to check in with an actual teacher who is deeply embedded in our public school system, and to ask her if the trends which Sowell discusses in his book are still relevant today. I picked Ramona because I knew she would not beat around the bush and would tell it like it is. Ramona Bessinger, welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's so great to have you. So I just wanted to, uh, by the way, before we got on this call, I, I looked you up on Twitter. And when I searched for Ramona Bessinger, you did not show up, which is very mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, Bessinger Ramona shows up like another Ramona Bessinger. Hard to believe oh. there are two, but um, I had to really dig a little bit to find you. And then the first thing that popped open when I clicked on your name was the following. Caution, this profile may include potentially sensitive content. You still <laughs> want to view it. <laughs> I'm very so sensitive, think, apparently. So Twitter is doing its best to make you hard to find. Yes. And, uh, you know, make people think twice before clicking or already positioning it like they don't agree with what you have to say. Yes. Right. So right. which is very interesting. I think it it's is. very interesting. Tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what you do. We know you're a teacher because I've introduced you that way, but tell us a little bit about, you know, your experience teaching, how long you've been teaching, what you teach, Mm -hmm. where you teach, all that kind of stuff. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 911, what's your emergency? Aylita! I'm Kane Princeton. Not Dr. Princeton. I am done with counseling. That's it. This is a story about Mylena Hendrick, a corporate accountant at war with her enemies. You are pathetic! Depression. Mylena, I love you. And anxiety. (laughs) Connie, come back to me. 
<laughs> My Lena, everything will work out. She needs a man. <laughs> I don't want to do this. Sometimes the hardest thing about life is living life. Listen to the accountant and the counselor wherever you get your podcast. So I've been teaching for 23 years, and about 15 of those years were at a suburban school in my neighborhood where I live. And then I took a little sabbatical to be a stay-at-home mom, very radical idea these days. And um, when I went back to teaching, the position that was available to me was uh, an English position in Providence, working at Providence schools. Very different student base and, and culture and whatnot, but you know what? Teaching is teaching. Children are children, and we're all universally there for, you know. So I've been teaching in Providence now for the past eight years, and sometime around last year, I noticed um, this radical shift in the curriculum. So we're looking at year 22 in education. I'm very, you know, familiar with curriculum, how curriculum works. I understand exactly, you know, how curriculum is introduced into schools. And this was quite frankly, shocking. We had um, a lot of new administrators from New York. Um, in my building in particular, there was this very unusual administrator with some very unusual ideas. Now I know those ideas to be culturally responsive uh, literature curriculum, which is actually not culturally responsive at all social emotional learning, which is actually not social emotional learning, but rather, I would say, uh, a very highly politicized neo-Marxist, perhaps even, uh, curriculum that is basically setting out and accomplishing to divide people, students, educators, and our society into two camps so that we are at at war with each other. And um, initially, I noticed something very, very wrong when I set out to teach the Declaration of Independence, an essay. I, kids were doing an essay, and my principal was irate, furious that I had done this, although he gave me no real reason why. And that was November 2020, and then 2021, January 2021, all the books rolled into the classroom. And that's when I started noticing a very bizarre theme of anti-Americanism. Uh, race-based literature, and very politicized, strange, cartoon-like books that I'd never seen before. I couldn't even recognize the authors. And what was most remarkable, and then I'll stop, you know, going on and on. What was most remarkable was the type of book. It was a paperback book printed, you know, often New York Times seller, best list. And I thought, well, since when are we reading and teaching books that are on the New York Times bestseller list? The authors were unknown to me. There are hundreds of them, these pamphlet-style books. So with the Declaration of Independence issue and then all of these bizarre books rolling into the classroom in school, I was, you know, immediately posing questions like, what the heck is this? And since then, you know. Okay, so so basically you've you've been teaching English. Now, when you said Providence was a different culture than what you were used to, what did you mean by that? I'm not familiar with Providence, so I'm not really sure what you meant. It's a very different culture, urban community. So you have an urban, you know, non-white population. So for me, that was very different because I taught for 15 years um, in a suburban school that was predominantly 
white with a smaller population. So now that shouldn't matter. And it didn't actually matter to me at all until race became the focal point of education sometime last year. Um, my whiteness, in fact, became the focus of attention for many of the students who began, you know, who would often refer to me as America, you know, or as privileged, or, you know, as, as even one of my colleagues said, biased in my, you know, all these words and sort of titles, suddenly race became this at the forefront of my experience as an educator. Whereas prior to last year, I'm, you know, I never would have thought I'd be sitting here having this conversation with you where I would be saying that race and division and the weaponization of children has become, you know, part of my narrative as a, as a 23 year veteran educator. So that's now, the only had, reason I mention it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, how long had you been at this school? Uh, this or, you're still there, right? Eight, you're still there. Yes. Eight okay. Year. I'm not okay. at that school because they transferred me out. <laughs> I see. Yeah. I see. That. A little game of politics playing. Interesting. So, okay. Yeah. So you were at that school and it, everything seemed fine at the school until 2020. Yes. Interesting. So you, you were there for what, like five or six years and then things started to shift. That's right. Okay. Things okay. Began to got shift. it. Okay. So it wasn't always that way there. Okay. Got it. No. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is because I, I don't know, have you, what is your familiarity with Thomas Sowell and in particular with the book Inside American Education? If you haven't read it, that's fine. I just want to know what you know about Sowell. What I understand is that he is really sort of, um, I would say, a true patriot and American and embraces all the um, ideals that we hold true to, you know, our culture and our, our, the spirit of what it means to be American and, and really the privilege of succeeding and succeeding on one's merits, you know, rather than uh, having everything being handed to us and being denied the right and privilege to stand for freedom and independence okay. and to celebrate the individual. It's kind of now, what I understand. Okay, and, and you picked that up just through the popular culture, maybe watching yes. a couple of YouTube yes. videos, but you haven't read his books, right? I have not read any of his okay. books, but I think okay. I can speak very well to his to his okay. mindset. His fair genius, enough, fair really. Enough. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. I mean, I you know, having read his work is not necessarily a prerequisite for, for coming on here. But the reason I wanted to bring you on was, first of all, you're, you're an outspoken public school teacher who's not afraid to speak her mind. And I wanted to check in with you on some of the claims that Sowell makes in his book. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So one of the first claims that Sowell makes is that academic skills have been steadily declining since the 1960s and that it's not even debatable, that it's clear, it's obvious, and it's impossible to ignore. And I very rarely hear people talk about that. You never hear a you know, a media pundit say something like, we've got to stop the decline in academics that are occurring all across the country, public, private, college, whatever. Now, from your experience, is that the case that academics, you've been doing this for 23 years, have they been declining? I think what we've seen is is this, and, and I'm glad you're asking this question, and this is something that I would agree to some extent, but I would also point to the American culture and the 
economy and the types of authors that we are producing. Everybody has gone to a public school mostly in the United States. So we're clearly doing something right. However, the decline happens here. In the past 20 years or so, a little more than 20 years, there's been this big push to mainstream every aspect of our culture into the public school system. And what that has done is not necessarily dumbed it down, but made it so that we are putting everybody into one bucket. And when we test and provide test uh, data of success or we measure success and failure in the public system, we now have kids that are, you know, maybe not, we're not typically part of the academic track, you know, in with kids who are, who are part of that sort of academic track. So it's been this sort of evening of the playing field that has skewed in many ways the data. So in that respect, yes, I guess the whole system is not, is sort of uh, because of that sort of push to mainstream and level the playing field Mm -hmm. has not given those students who would otherwise excel the opportunity to shine. Because now, you know, that's, you know, they want to do away with honors classes, do away with Mm -hmm. failing grades, et cetera, et cetera. So it is true to some extent, but there is also a reason for that, um, that outcome. Well, whatever the reason may be, and I'm sure, you know, honest people might disagree. You would agree that the fact is that the academics are in decline? Yes, I think okay. the overall culture, okay. and especially now, we're seeing gaps in reading and writing that are astronomical since this new curriculum landed in Rhode Island across the board. Reading and writing scores are lower than ever. And why is that? Because there's nothing for kids to grasp onto with regards to critical thinking. The mm. kids are reading these cartoon-like books filled with political messages. Mm. They're being indoctrinated in the classroom by activist teachers. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I would say what okay. we're going to see is a real sort of major decline in critical thinking and academia. Okay. Uh, the, the next claim that Sowell makes that I'd like to check in with you on is he talks about a consistent trend towards grade inflation, that um, while test scores have been going down, grades have been going up. Number one, do you agree with that? And, and do you participate in that? I don't mean to put you on the spot, no, but I'm wondering, yeah. you know, what's going on with grades? Is everybody an- getting an A or a B? Oh, yes. That is an excellent conversation. And by the way, I just testified at the Senate oversight hearing for education on that very issue. And um, I basically said at the Senate um, hearing on education that we were being made quite literally to change F's and zeros to C's and D's. Now, this is unethical. It is a misrepresentation of data. And now we've completely lowered the bar. We are now saying that kids that do nothing are, are in fact, passing a course. So that is 100% happening in schools. I would say it's, it's happening in epidemic proportions in Providence schools. And many teachers have spoken out on the issue. And most recently, 
at the Senate oversight hearing. So I can confirm that this is in fact happening and it needs to be addressed because it's unethical and it's fraudulent reporting. Now, how do they make you do this? I mean, can't you give whatever grade you want? And you're, you have tenure, I assume. Is that correct? Yes, for whatever that is. Whatever that's is. worth. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you're protected by a union. So, I mean, obviously, the reason you're still in the school system is because of your tenure and the protection, right, that you that you have as a teacher. Uh, I would argue that um, my union is complicit right. in the demise of public education. I would argue that my union is complicit in the uh, rise of political activism. In fact, I'm speaking this Wednesday and my union president has called to protest my speech at a very, a very informal gathering, in fact, here in Rhode Island. And um, why is that? Because they are actually complicit in all of this. Who, let me ask you a question. Who has, who has what to gain through great inflation? What is the motive? Stay with us. We'll be right back. So how do you live a good life, especially now? Is it about happiness, purpose, love, or friendship? And what about health or wealth? Can you live a good life even if you're struggling? The truth is often not what you think. I'm Jonathan Fields, best-selling author and host of the award-winning Good Life Project podcast. Every week, we bring you revealing conversations with some of the smartest, most accomplished, and yes, sometimes famous people that will awaken insight, arm you with practical tips, and inspire you to live your best life no matter what comes your way. Look for Good Life Project on your favorite podcast app today. Well, because they're bringing in materials that need to be, you have to measure these materials. You have to be able to say, oh, look, this race-based curriculum is effective. And look at here are the, you know, everybody's passing now, whereas before they were failing. So inflating the grades uh, is important to the commissioner of education currently in Rhode Island, who is advancing this curriculum. It's important to her so she can say, look, at, I'm doing a great job. But we all know now, you know, we're sounding the alarm. Several of us are, myself in particular, that great inflation is, okay. is becoming an epidemic and it serves no child, no family, and certainly not going to serve our culture. It will serve the sort of regime that is sort of bubbling up underneath the surface, though. Sowell makes the claim that grade inflation is designed to camouflage the decline in academic performance that's going on. So parents think, oh, my Johnny's coming home with A's and B's. He's a really smart kid. He's doing terrific. What's the problem? Do you, you agree with that? I 100%. Again, okay. if you have parents buying into this new curriculum that they're administering, oh, look, my child is passing. I don't care if they, you know, they're not going to protest, right? You, Everybody is being bought out in this administration. They're being given stimulus money and schools are being given ESSER funds, pandemic funds, um, promotions. If you play ball with these uh, sort of political activists. Okay. Kids are being given grades. Grades are being inflated. That is the buy-in there. So, yeah, uh, okay, one hundred percent correct. Sowell talks about the you know the self-esteem movement. You know that it's important. You know 
we're told that kids feel good about themselves. So he, he gives an example in an international uh, study, Koreans ranked number one in math and Americans ranked at the bottom of the list, whatever, however big the list was. But when asked if they were good at math, only 23% of Koreans said yes, but 68% of American students said yes. So they're world leaders in feeling good about themselves, <laughs> but they're uh, world trailers when it comes to actually being able to, you know, figure out the circumference of a circle. Um, it, do you do you find that this self-esteem issue is, I mean, I remember Sol wrote this book in the early 90s. So maybe self-esteem yeah. was a buzzword back then. Is it still a big deal? Out of control. And of control. that ties, okay, it is out of control because it, now that particular point ties into um, the social emotional learning piece and this whole restorative justice. You can't discipline a child. And when I say discipline, I don't mean, you know, physical. I mean, you, you can't say, listen, you didn't study for this test or you didn't, you know, practice how to write your paragraph or your essay. As a result, you know, you don't have a thesis statement or supporting data, right? You can't say that to a student anymore because you don't want to hurt, the child might be traumatized, you know, they're using these words like trauma and, uh, you know, equity in the classroom, etc. So we're not allowed to even say to a child, we're, and, and so in this respect, you know, yes, Thomas Sowell is 100% correct. And that is happening now. And it, as I said, it's happening in that social emotional platform, they're actually rolling this out, and telling us as educators, we cannot uh, speak to high standards anymore or measurable goals because that's racist or sexist or offensive or whatever. And so, you know, people are being denied <clears throat> the spirit of, of achievement in this country. So un-American. Um, so, so we'll, you know, talks about the dumbing down of American education. Um, difficult vocabulary words have disappeared from the textbooks and less serious texts are being offered. He, he talks about um, nostalgically the McGuffey's readers. Are you familiar with that? I am not familiar with McGuffey's okay. readers, but tell very me. Very interesting. I'm very fascinated by this because I, I, I've discovered the McGuffey's readers because my wife and I homeschool our four uh, children. Mm -hmm. And my wife discovered them somehow. And through her, I learned about them. Basically, they were books that were published, I think, in the 1830s. And were, were popular until the 1920s. And they sold about 122 million copies of these books. That's second only to the Bible. I mean, it was a huge runaway, you know, hit. And they were just very um, high level uh, books about poetry, literature, storytelling, no math or science, but it was all about reading and writing. I think you would find it very interesting. Uh, you could purchase the entire series of seven books for $7 on, on Amazon Kindle if you're interested. So I'll, I'll send you a link to that later on. But Thank you. so Sowell talks about how the tactics that the education establishment uses when they're accused of, you know, managing the decline of, of, of American education. He talks about the secrecy. He talks about, you know, grade inflation, camouflaging what's really going on. He talks about denial. He talks about shifting blame. And he talks about it always ends up wow. with the, the final thing, which is demanding more money. We wow. need more money to yes. fix the problem. Okay. <laughs> so amazing. I want to ask you about, he, he nails it. You would love this book. Yes. You really have to read it. So talk to me living about it. secrecy. Talk oh. to me. You're living it, right? You don't need, yeah. you could write it. You don't need to read it. 
Talk to me about secrecy. What, what, how is secrecy used? You know, he talks about these supposed confidentiality policies Mm -hmm. that prevent people from really digging into what's going on in the schools. Do you you experience that? Is there a lot of secrecy in the education establishment? Is there a lot of secrecy? Would, you know, everything is based on secrecy and dishonesty currently. And in fact, it's part of policy. So for example, I'll give you two examples of how secrecy has become uh, mainstream and and, uh, part of school culture. The Rhode Island Department of Education currently has a policy that is based on a federal Title IX, I think, or I'm not sure now which law, but there's a policy on the books that allows adults in any school to have a private secret. I don't even want to say private because a secret conversation about, about a child's gender, or a child's home life. So the teacher is allowed to have a private conversation with the student. Okay, because you said adult, but I didn't know if you meant teacher or not. Okay, so teacher teacher. or or an adult, a a guidance counselor. I see. Um, So once a child admits to a guidance counselor or confesses to a a guidance counselor about problems at home or that he or she may be interested in exploring homosexuality, and this could go right back to the sixth grade, you know, as early as fifth and sixth grade, then all of a sudden, the door is shut to the parent. The, the, and this is a law, and this is actually happening where children are being counseled and referred to for hormone therapy, in some cases, surgery to remove their breasts, to completely alter their identity at the age of 10, 11, and 12, where children are exploring identity and where they're particularly vulnerable to trying out different hats and and identities. So they're getting these children and having private conversations without parental knowledge. In fact, parents are, they will remove children from homes. And it has been, it's being done currently. It sounds, it sounds very sort of, you know, dystopian and, and frightening, but that, that sort of level and degree of secrecy is, is overt now and sanctioned by the law. So pro- this kind of secrecy that is occurring in the schools is something that you're, we're starting to see parents speak out about, you know, currently. And I've sounded the alarm along with several other parents. We are really pushing this agenda. The second area where we're seeing secrecy occur is within embedded in that social emotional learning structure. Once again, I caution anyone who is listening that to, to really sort of look beyond the ridiculous title of social emotional learning, culturally responsive literature, et cetera. These are Trojan horses, right? So the social emotional learning tenants really push educators to assume the role as parents of parents to children. In fact, my principal at the beginning of this year boasted about how he was the parent of every child that walked into the school from 7 a.m. until 3 o'clock whenever they leave. I did remind him, by the way, that he was, in fact, not the parent of any child who walked into the school. I didn't like that very much, but too bad. But yes, he, he sent out a policy shortly after school began as part of this social emotional learning. And in that policy, it allowed students, and I'm going to quote, that felt traumatized to walk out of the classroom without any permission or without any checks and balances as to where that child was going. So of course, you know, kids being kids, they wander out. And once you allow a child, you know, that free reign, one, you potentially put that child in harm's way. And you also open up the door for 
litigation because now, you know, I have no control over my classroom, right? Children can leave, come and go if they feel traumatized. I was specifically told not to um, ask a child where he or she was going because that would further traumatize them. And so where are they going? We asked at a faculty, where are the children going? Oh, well, they're going to a special classroom with a special person who was going to be there to receive them and talk to them about their personal trauma. I've never seen anything like this. So, of course, I'm, I wrote letters to my superintendent to the, you know, this is happening, this sort of secrecy with, with the adults and some adults in the building and children. This is very dangerous. We don't even know who, you know, who is actually with these children and what they're talking about. There are no checks and balances at all. As a parent, I would be furious if I knew this was going on. But more importantly, as a teacher, I see so much potential for predatorial behavior here and children being harmed. So, you Mm. know, we as parents and and a couple of educators, maybe two in the country have spoken out on this. Now, the first part about the uh, hormone therapy and the uh, mastectomy, I I read about that in Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage. Can I assume you read that as well? Don't assume I read it. I'm okay. You didn't read it. Okay. I have not read it. Although so I understand, I do know her. You've heard you of, know, you've heard of it. Okay. So yeah. now have you, have you personally, you know, this is something that I have repeated to friends uh, here. I live in California and I've talked about this phenomenon occurring in, in schools and friends who hear this don't believe it. Mm. They literally don't believe oh, that yeah. teachers would be keeping this kind of stuff secret. And I'm, I'm yeah. curious, have you personally experienced this with any of your students or, I mean, Apart from what you hear, what have you actually personally experienced on this in this domain? Yeah, well, I'll, I can be very candid and honest about that as well. And first, I want to just sort of preface my my comments with the fact that te- there's a reason teachers are not speaking out. Look what's happened to me. I'm I'm banned <laughs> and censored on Twitter. I have been harassed ruthlessly at school. Thankfully, I have a national um, attorney group, Judicial Watch helping me. Otherwise, I don't think I'd be even here speaking to you because um, they go after people. They really do this whole sort of group, this group of activism. So there's real, there's a compelling reason why a lot of people feel that they can't speak out. So that is one piece. But I will say that, um, and there's also the worry of violating privacy, but I'm, I'm going to speak in general terms. Okay. Okay. One of the things that I, rem- I noticed this year was something I've never seen at the beginning of the year. Uh, I noticed that there were sixth and seventh graders um, coming into the classroom, not a lot, maybe one in every class or two with uh, husky voices, very sort of deep and dark husky voices. And I thought, well, these are kids pretending, putting on, you know, uh, come to find out the children had been taking hormones because they talk about it. Puberty you know, blockers, both, right? Puberty yeah, blockers very, and testosterone. Very scary, very weird. And okay. again, um, disturbing to me as a mother and an educator. The young males were always, you know, a lot of them had open conversations in front of me or another educator. So would come to me and ask me questions about what sex they are. Who Are they a boy? Are they a girl? Some people, some of the kids you know, they didn't even know if their mother was a mother or father. Like the kids are so being confused with this gender ideology 
you know, which is fine if you're 21 and you want to shift and experiment, do whatever you want with your body. But when a child is in the sixth grade, fifth grade, uh, seventh grade, eighth grade, even high school, they're not ready to have all of this information. For heaven's sakes, I can't even keep up with all the different pronouns and the gender, the different uh, possible genders that you could or cannot, you know, you can or cannot be. And so kids have been very anxiety stricken, very confused. And then in some case, other kids were like, oh, you know, miss, I'm pansexual. Do you know what that is? I'm like, no, don't know what it is. I'm your teacher, not having that conversation with you. But clearly someone in the building is talking to the children about hormone, taking hormones, about choosing different sexes. Heck, does that with a child. What grown-up is doing that? And why is this being allowed? This is 100% happening. And any adult who denies it's happening or remains silent about it, shame on them. They're complicit. And every single teacher should be doing what I'm doing and standing up. I understand that they're afraid, so they're quitting or they're worried and, you know, hiding. But now is not the time to hide because we all have children that are going to be functioning in this very bizarre society that they are trying to create. And, you know, I'm starting to get even a little agitated when I hear, you know, that that you're saying people are denying No, this is happening and it's real, you know, and in some cases, young people are being are taking hormones and then being so distraught about being, you know, to discover they have now hair on their face or they're growing breasts or or they're just being messed up by this whole gender ideology and then not knowing that they've done irreparable damage and killing themselves. So this is, and we're going to see, my guess is, you know, in another year, sadly, because teachers are afraid to speak out and be vocal, you're going to see a lot of children suffering. It's really shameful. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Adam Pacifico, host of the UK's number one ranked leadership podcast, The Leadership Enigma. We're helping leaders, their teams, and organizations all over the world discover new ways of working to succeed in a world that just won't stop changing. With over 100 episodes already, our guests have included top CEOs, Olympic athletes, undercover police officers, former NBA players, psychologists, New York Times best-selling authors, military commanders, academics, and more. We'd love you to come and join the conversation and be part of the Leadership Enigma community. Sobel talks about in the book, he talks about how the academic pursuits are being pushed away in favor of what he calls world saving crusades in the classroom. And he said, from kindergarten to college, these are crowding out the basic skills that American students lack. Now, I'm, tr- I'm sitting down here, I'm trying to list what I think are the world saving crusades going on in the schools. And I'd like you to let me know if I'm on the right track here, if I've I've missed something or if if something is wrong. Okay. So the first world-saving, supposedly world-saving, I'll say that in quotes, world-saving crusade is the anti-racism crusade. They are seeking to save the world from racism. Of course. Okay. The gender identity movement is a crusade to save the world from bigotry. Correct. Okay. This is happening. The climate change crusade 
is going to save the world from climate disaster. This is happening also. Is that happening too? Okay. Yes. And that, now you, you referred before to the anti-intellectual movement, which is supposedly saving the world from meritocracy. Correct. Right. Getting rid of the tests, getting rid of the honors classes, right? You referred to that. Now there's another crusade that I've identified called the hate speech crusade, which is to save the world from offensive language. Correct. Okay. Yes. Now, now Sowell talks about the multicultural crusade that was going on in the 80s and 90s, which is supposedly going to save the world from America and Western culture. Is that still going on? Oh, in many, many different ways. I mean, where do I even begin with that? For example, we have the Department of Justice who come, has come into Providence schools and basically entered into a legal agreement with Providence schools, which is really, we all, <laughs> you look at that legal agreement, the Department of Justice is now, in my opinion, complicit in dismantling our schools here in, in Rhode Island, specifically in Providence. So they, the Department of Justice basically said, we no longer can have teachers like myself teaching English. We need teachers who teach English as a second language. So, you know, the Commissioner of Education has grabbed onto this Department of Justice settlement uh, agreement where they're sort of, you know, doing away with teachers like myself or wanting to do away with teachers like myself in place of teachers who have an English as a second language certification to accommodate what the Commissioner of Education refers to as multilingual learners. Mm. You know, just just this whole sort of elevation of, and by the way, English is not my first language either. So I guess I am also a multilingual learner. However, it's a ridiculous term because she's assuming people have speak multiple languages, one, and two, she's negating that they're learning English as a second language. So this whole, you know, push to, you know, we have to center and revolve our entire education entire curriculums and curricula and and culture in schools must be now geared around multiculturalism. I, well, America is by nature multicultural. That is who we are. We don't need to right. It's always been that know, way. Reframe it in some ridiculous terminology, you know. So yeah, that is happening too. It's really and and this is why honestly, I'm going to be perfectly honest. I didn't read, I didn't do my homework assignment because I knew that what is, what, what is actually happening in the schools, I can attest to in real time. So Thomas Sowell was talking about various theories and ideologies that he believed would occur. And as I was reading some of the points, and even as I touched upon some of your points in your Google doc that you submitted to me, I was like, ah, oh, right on. I mean, this is unbelievable, actually. It's quite astounding that he predicted this early on and it's now happening. I, for one, would never have believed it and have been guilty maybe of being a little bit too, you know, uh, too eager to embrace some of these sort of diversity, equity, inclusion models and ideas early on, like say maybe mm -hmm. five years ago. Now mm -hmm. I realize what in fact is going on and I'm like, whoa. This is a complete well, coup. Talking, you know, there's a, there's a whole section in the book about the bilingual movement. And according to Sowell, it's, it is a cover and a camouflage for an activist anti-American agenda. Yes. That it's not about 
just trying to find a language that the students could best learn math in or best learn whatever history in. It's really an anti-American agenda in disguise. Do you agree with that? Yes. And in fact, I've tweeted about it, you know, ad nauseum. I think everyone's sick of hearing me say that this is really not about CRT. I, I don't even like to use the term CRT. It's it's not it's really about a political movement. It's about creating division using race, creating a buy in for people, division using gender. You know, they're covering all bases. That is exactly true. And it's blowing my mind just to hear you kind of read some of these texts and and because it's actually occurring in the schools and the anti-American sentiment is everywhere. You know, yes, they're reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, but none of the kids stand up. Teachers are not making the kids stand up. And in fact, they're encouraged to sit down or walk out or, pro- you know, so it is actually all a smokescreen. The whole, all the infighting about CRT and 1619 Project, I could care less about that term and I could care less about the 1619 Project. That is also a Trojan horse for a much bigger more nefarious political agenda that is that is seeking to politicize our children. Okay. Now, I can give you an example. Some of the lessons that we have we have been exposed to in Providence schools are quite shocking to me and should be shocking to everybody. I posted about them on Facebook. You know, again, the there, there's tons, right? But I can post sound bites here and there on social media. Um, which is probably why they're censoring. But one of the lessons was uh, a vocabulary lessons, a lesson that was taught to kindergartners K through two. And in this lesson, the vocabulary whiteopia, white flight, white supremacy, and um, I forget, there was one other one that was just shocking. And, and little kindergartners had to learn about the, you know, had to learn the meaning of these words and the impact that, that these words would have on their social activism in the school. Social activism, like what happened to finger painting and, you know, learning the alphabet. Now they're learning mm-hmm. whiteopia and white supremacy. Right. Very typical, right? right? So there you see the politicizing <laughs> of our education system getting rolled out K through eight. We're seeing it in other ways and the higher grades, but honestly, the message is the same. Hate America and fight for the destruction and dismantling of everything American. You can't deny it. It's right there in black and white. It is actually occurring now. Let me pivot to uh, another uh, topic in in Sowell's book, chapter two, actually. Let me start with a quote from Sol, and I'd like to get your reaction to this, because this might hit a nerve with you. I'm a little afraid to quote this, because I know you haven't read the book, so this might come as a surprise. Okay, quote, okay. no discussion of American education can be realistic without considering the caliber of the people who teach in the nation's schools. By all indicators, whether objective data or firsthand observations, the intellectual caliber of public school teachers in the United States is shockingly low, end quote. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Now you're a public school teacher. So take a deep breath. 
<laughs> he's basically saying, and he later on says that pub, like public school teachers are the dregs of the academic world. <laughs> and he, he supports this with a lot of data. He shows that people who go into education have the lowest test scores of any other subgroup of students. <laughs> he says the professors of education are not respected by other professors oh, in the colleges. Oh. And he goes into a lot of detail. I'm not going to do it justice here. I'm just yeah. giving you his conclusion. And I'd like to know your response to that. All right. So that's going to be one I have to handle delicately because I currently have to, you know, have to go to school tomorrow. <laughs> However, I'm going to be honest with you. We were just joking about this the other day. Teachers art can be, you know, skilled in so many ways. But actually teaching critical thinking and academic, academic, you know, topics of real uh, importance. I don't think that I, you know, uh, you can see I'm trying to be very ginger about this, but okay. I'm just going to say a say, lot of say, teachers are you know, you know amazing. That, that yes, Jack yes. Nicholson scene, you can't <laughs> handle the truth. You remember that? Uh, well, okay, so you know, we, we can handle the truth, Ramona. Give it to us straight. Okay, so, well, I think that there are a lot of very gifted teachers that, that are reaching kids and, and probably sharing amazing information. I know my own kids have had amazing teachers at the, in their school, you know, and I would like to think that I'm a very good teacher as well. But do I think that intellectual uh, stimulus or even education or even, you know, <laughs> IQ, comes into it. I mean, let's consider that pedagogy, when you take a pedagogy class, it's like cutting out paper dolls. You know, these people who have PhDs and call themselves doctors of education, I want to laugh out loud at that. I mean, come on, really, you've got your doctorate in cutting out paper dolls. That's basically it, or the letters of the alphabet. Nobody gave you that degree because you came out with something earth shattering or something you know, significant. We, it is what it is. I mean, I consider my profession right now to be on the same level as a store clerk, perhaps in many ways. We're just not serving the same purpose that we used to. But it doesn't mean that there aren't rock star, amazing teachers sharing and teaching it, real, you know, <laughs> information. But well, so, that's so, happening so, less yeah. and less. You're so, right. Did you go? Sad. Did you go to? School, a school of education. I mean, do you have a, one of those degrees? Well, I went, I, I got my undergraduate degree at a bilingual college in Canada. Okay. And then I went to Rhode Island College to get my two year teaching certificate. And, okay. and honestly, it was ridiculous. It really was. Like I said, we learned how to create lesson plans, et cetera. And, okay. you know, and the people who were teaching it, I mean, honestly, just, okay, so you're confirming what Sowell's saying. Yeah. Basically, yeah, I, you don't I, have to be that smart to study education, and oh, the teachers no. don't have to be that smart either. No, but you do have to be talented okay. and good to, to manage yeah. a classroom, right? Oh, absolutely. No one's questioning that. No one's. Yeah. But, it, but it, what Sowell's saying is that academically, they're not um, high-performing people, and that it's not it's not a coincidence that they shy away from academics in their teaching and prefer to focus on these uh, fads and fashions of education, these, these crusades. 
because mm-hmm. they were never really that academic to begin with. Is that, is that a, a fair a fair statement? Okay. Yes. Again, there's millions of teachers, and not all teachers are that way. Some teachers, like myself, really try to focus on academia and critical thinking. I mean, you know, I really did want to teach the Declaration of Independence and have kids write a persuasive essay. That was met with, how dare I? You know, it's too difficult and too challenging. And how could I teach such a racist concept? And I mean, that's there, to which I responded, uh, it's a Declaration of Independence. It's a persuasive essay. It is certainly not encouraged to be a critical thinker in schools. And you're correct. Like a lot of very stupid people are in front of our children and, and pushing, you know, a very sort of political agenda. And, and by the way, they're pushing a harmful political agenda. You know, you're, we're seeing examples of anti-Israel sentiment popping up. Children not understanding the, the horrors of the Holocaust. You know, this really, really upsets me on a great deal on, on, on a few different levels. You know, children seeing Jews as the aggressors in our society, not understanding exactly what happened in the Second World War. You know, so uh, it, it's it's a complete and utter mess currently. And and yes, I would agree. Sadly, I, I would hate to... <clears throat> I hate to now, have to agree with you, but I do. There's one word you haven't used yet, which which Soul um, whips out in the book, um, and I'm wondering if if you're not using that word intentionally or if you're going to use it at some point. But the word is brainwashing. Soul actually makes the claim that what's going on in schools is is literally brainwashing, yes. and that the the schools have taken the playbook from Mao and Stalin, and that they're using a lot of the techniques. Let me, let me, let me tell you some of the techniques that Sowell talks about. Right. He talks about using emotional stress to break down the intellectual and emotional resistance to the ideas being conveyed. So he gives an wow. example of how, you know, they would show during back in the eighties and nineties, they would show a, a video of the fallout from a nuclear blast in Japan. And they would horrify the kids, you know, they would stress them out at how devastating it was. And then they would use that to push the, you know, not, you know, the anti-nuclear proliferation, you know, agenda that was happening Mm -hmm. back then. We don't have that now as much, but they would sort of use emotional stress to break down the kids' resistance to these ideas. Hence the focus in our schools on trauma. Everybody's traumatized. We're like, has anybody read Frank McCork's book, Angela's Ashes? There's trauma, you know? Right. I mean- I've never seen so many kids embracing this, this, this identity that they are traumatized. You know, every child has some form of anxiety or disorder. And in fact, they're, they're, they're openly discussing which disorder they have. Maybe it's that they identify with being, and I'm, again, you're not going to believe this, but identify with being a cat, like, or identify with being all these different sexual. You know, there's very strange research, you know, as kids, all of them seem to have personal and emotional trauma. There is no trauma, but this is being pushed. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello. Welcome to the Redfern Book Review Podcast. I am your host, Amy Mayer. And if you're a reader... I think my show might just be for you. 
What I do is I take a deep dive into the books you've been wanting to read, uh, other books you've never heard of, and we talk about all things literary. Think public radio meets your book club via your best friend. We talk to authors, my friends, and I just add personal musings. It's a lot of fun. So, so the emotional stress is real and it's, it's, it's taken on the language of trauma mm-hmm. in, in the current day. So we didn't have that in the, in the early nineties, but now we have that word trauma. It's the buzzword. Yes. And I, I don't use the word brainwashing. I, there's a lot of synonymous terms. One of them is indoctrination. You know, children are being indoctrinated. I've spoken about that extensively. This is, and they're being indoctrinated by by young 20-something-year-old teachers who, who they had themselves have been indoctrinated. Right. So, but again, it's, it's not all of us, you know? Sowell talks about how the, the second technique of brainwashing is to isolate the child from his parents' influence and drive a wedge yes. between the kids and the parents. Do you see that happening uh, in yes. your school? Well, I just spoke to that. There is a policy in my own child's school, high school, where they're they want to have conversations with children separate okay. of parents about sex right. and gender. Why is that? When I asked the principal, well, because your child may have something to say that he won't be comfortable saying to you. I'm like, you're making these value judgments about my kid. Like, heck no. I'm just glad my, my kids are older. You know, my son's in high school and he knows what's going on. But can you imagine Little children being spoken to about an adult, about, you know, their sexuality, but this is happening. And in fact, it is embedded in the policy. So if children have uh, of late, these gender neutral bathrooms are popping up everywhere. That means co-ed bathrooms. You can call them gender neutral. These are co-ed bathrooms where boys and girls go into a bathroom together and share it, right? Mm -hmm. Kids have a problem with this. How dare they, if they even mention it, then they're swarmed by, you know, guidance counselors and uh, groups and this person and that person having a conversation about how they're not being sensitive to people who identify in the opposite sex. So you have a young girl. I would imagine that's being abused also by a lot of boys going into the girl's room just for the kicks of it, right? You know, the mess there, you can just see, I'll give you an example. My son's school. Uh, there, there's a young girl who identifies as a boy. So she's now using the boy's bathroom. She was in there. She refused to leave. Some boys wanted to use a urinal, um, a little scuffle kind of ensued, not, not a physical one, but you know, words were exchanged. Those boys were suspended. This girl was revered as a hero. So, you know, this is an absolute insanity that is occurring now on a worst case scenario. Worst case scenario, you're going to have a boy going into a girl's bathroom, raping a girl. I mean, we just heard of that happening in Loudoun County, Virginia, I believe it was. And it's happening all over the country to some extent. Like, you know, girls changing in boys' bathrooms, boys changing in girls' bathrooms. Are you kidding me? And they're they're claiming that this is to, um, you know, to, to support the laws currently coming from the federal government and now being enforced as policy by the Rhode Island Department of Education to be inclusive. Now, how is this working in the locker rooms? I mean, I understand the bathrooms, you know, could be sort of considered uh, sort of a gray zone, but the, the locker rooms are pretty black and white. How is that being handled in your, in your son's uh, high school? Don't they have locker rooms where they shower? 
you know what, apparently they're supposed to be now monitored by an adult, which can you imagine now the teacher that has to stand there and look at children taking showers there, that, that, that sort of creates a whole other problem. So this is what I said to my kids, get out of that bathroom, get out of that shower, don't even engage. You know, I won't remove him from the school because we have a right to be there. He has a right to be there. And by the way, I told him he is part of an historic time in our country and history. And I want him to see, and he's, you know, he's learning and he gets it. You know, he understands what's happening. My thing is the little children, the middle school children, like this is a recipe for disaster, not to mention the pedophiles that are sitting and, you know, could be watching and, or monitoring these showers. Like, ah, it just goes on and on with ridiculous. Right. Worrisome. Okay. okay. Well, you know, we're coming up on the end of our, uh, of our time now. So I just wanted to uh, end by um, asking you what's next. What's next for you? I know that you're really doing battle on a lot of these fronts. What's, what's the, yeah. uh, pro- you know, the outlook? What's the uh, prognosis? Well, what's the uh, prognosis, Ramona? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's see. I'm currently challenging absolutely everything that, that, that is being done to me to silence me. Um, as far as Twitter goes, um, you know, I can't challenge anything like, like whatever, who cares about that? I'm not giving up. I'm going to continue to speak and continue to challenge these policies, the, the push for so-called equity in the schools. This is ridiculous. Our parent group is getting bigger. There's, there are teachers sharing information all over the country with me. And so I feel it's my duty to continue speaking out. And I'm very, very grateful to have Judicial Watch, you know, helping me, helping me create a stand, you know, maintain right. my ground. I'm right. not going to back down. That's the long and short of it. I will not back down. Now they and I moved encourage you any to other teacher school. out there. Now, now they moved you to another school. I mean, that <laughs> is a pretty um, dramatic, um, you know, I mean, what, what's, what's going on with that? What, what kind of school did you move into and, and how does transfer- that play out? Because I, you know, I was exposing everything this principal was doing, uh, basically telling the truth, right? I mean, right. he has posters of naked men dancing around in the woods. I put that poster up on social media. He doesn't like it. He's complaining. You know, there were all kinds of, you know, problems with me being there because that school is ground zero for this full rollout of this polit- highly politicized agenda. Um you know, they had us at the beginning of the year doing privilege walks and things like that. Of course, I didn't participate. But anyway, so long story short, they uh, there was a lot of media attention. Sometime around October, I was I went into my classroom and told I was no longer teaching in this classroom. And I was told at the end of the day to report to a high school where I've been sitting literally in a basement <laughs> conducting interviews getting lots of research done in this basement, by the way, um, where they are trying to silence me and, you know, fire me without firing me, so to speak. So basically they have you, they don't have you in front of students anymore. Oh no, but don't despair because I'm getting quite a bit of work done, even though I'm, you know, down there quite a bit of research. I see. So basically they, they're saying, okay, we have to keep paying her. That's and, correct. you know, you're going to get your pension and all that other stuff, but they're just going to keep you out of the classroom so you can't cause trouble. Is that the bottom line? I suppose that would be their their intention. <clears throat> I can't think of anything else. I haven't done anything wrong in 23 years. I've never been disciplined. I have never had a 
disciplinary action against me. I don't even have a parking ticket. So, you know, I think that what they wanted to do was get me out of the school, out of exposing what was happening in this particular school. Uh, You know, you see examples of this in every industry where anybody who goes against this agenda is silenced in some way or harassed, you know, all of the above. But hey, you know, I'm here in this country because I love America and the spirit of America and the Constitution and what composes and makes us all Americans is freedom. And I'm going to damn well fight for it for my children. And they can move me to the basement. They can move me to the moon. You know, the proverbial cat's out of the bag and um, it's not working. You know, I've done lots of interviews from my basement classroom and in fact found an archived library where they're hiding all these wonderful books that they don't, I guess, want kids to read. So um, I have lots to do during my day. So (laughs) more to come on that front. We're challenging it all. Ramona Bessinger, thank you for joining me on the Genius Thomas Sowell podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great deal of fun. I'm Alan Woolen, and this has been episode 15 of the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Join us for the next episode where we will be discussing the second half of Sowell's book, Inside American Education. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.